Thank you for joining us if you're online. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5 in the New Testament. If you're using our Bibles here, that would be page 962, 962. In addition to the many spiritual needs that we often talk about, our world is filled with desperate physical need as well. There are many who don't have clean water or enough food. You don't have to drive very far from here into perhaps Milwaukee County to find people who need a safer place to live. In our state now, there are refugees like the Afghans who will be putting on clothes that we no longer need and are gathering like the children who will be opening up those Operation Christmas Child boxes in the coming months. Or like the man who stopped by the offices here this past week asking for gas money to get to family in another state. It's actually not that unusual of a request, and we were able to help him from the Deacon's Fund with a uh, a gas card. God knows and God cares And the the sometimes difficult part is to know how should we as Christians individually, how should a church be involved in meeting physical needs? Uh, We don't get a complete answer for that in our passage today, but we do get a snapshot, if you will, of how the first century church in Ephesus uh, addressed some of that need, particularly, specifically to widows. And Paul instructs Timothy to say, care, care for the widows, but care carefully. There's wisdom needed. The first two verses of this chapter actually address uh, Timothy about meeting spiritual needs, particularly defining some of the various demographics of the church that Timothy would serve spiritual needs, but then verses 3 through 16 are an extended discussion of meeting needs of widows with financial needs. And there's a lot of wisdom by means of principle at least here for how we as Christians and church can be involved. So verses 1 through two, one and 2 are about how church leaders must indeed meet spiritual needs. And even there, you need to care, Timothy, Pastor Timothy, essentially, in Ephesus, care, but do it carefully, wisely. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So if you need to correct an older man, do it carefully, graciously. If you try to get into the setting of Ephesus and Paul and Timothy, this is a church they were both acquainted with quite well. Paul and Timothy had served together in Ephesus. Paul had planted the church in Ephesus maybe some 10 years or so earlier. Timothy had been with him. It had been really a ministry center where Paul had been teaching for over two years, Acts 19 tells us. 
And then he had, just a couple of years before writing this personal letter to Timothy, written the more general letter to the Ephesians. So this was a church and the people that Paul and Timothy both knew well. So Timothy, as you talk with these people, I realize there's going to be some hard conversations. Chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 7, you're going to need to correct some false teaching, and perhaps that's where this came into play. You will need to correct older men who have been teaching wrongly. And Timothy, I know you're, you're young, chapter 4, verse 12, and you might be easily intimidated, but um, you can't like flip over to the reverse and suddenly come on so strong, so don't rebuke an older man harshly. The word harsh is actually about, it's really a word from like hitting somebody, but here it's a matter of verbally attacking someone. They might deserve it, you could think, if they're teaching false doctrine. You might, you might be a bit righteously angry, but restrain yourself and don't rebuke harshly. Instead, he uses this, this, uh, this positive word, exhort or encourage. Sometimes the word even means like comforting someone, but other times it's in the, like this time, is, it's, a, it's a confrontation, but you confront graciously. In other words, you come alongside and say, this, this is what you need to do so it's not you must say something Timothy but how you say it always matters so urge implore plead with them like a dad if you have to correct your dad uh, as an adult you probably try to do it carefully respectfully it's like my adult children who use their nice voice when trying to tell me something I need to know about technology or social media or something like that they're, they're very kind it, Restrain yourself. Don't use your position like a club just because you're a spiritual leader. In recent years, several widely known pastors in this country have been removed from leading large, effective Bible-teaching churches because somewhere the, the power of their position had led to an arrogance that had led to a mistreatment and really a bullying of others. Now, I really can't imagine Timothy slipping into that. He just didn't seem to have that personality. But Paul is warning him and all church leaders since that those things are dangers. Um, so Paul continues after saying, you know, treat, correct older people, older men like, like a dad to keep using this family illustration to define really all relationships of a, of a spiritual leader, church leader, to people in the church. So, treat younger, uh, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So there might be a guy, Timothy, in your church who's about your age, he's like your peer, and, and just because he's wrong, you can't yell at him. You love him even though he's wrong, and so you treat him kindly like a brother. What about a woman who's older than you that you would need to talk to about something she said or did? Then what? Family again. Just noting and being respectful of her age and be kind as if she's your mom. And what about if it's a younger woman? Timothy makes sure, there he adds, in all purity. Same term Paul used in chapter 4, verse 12, be an example in purity, Timothy. So 
recognizing the obvious that there, there's kind of like a, a, a moral danger, there's this opposite gender dynamic that might come into play. So when a, when a church, a male church leader interacts with a young woman, make sure you do it in all purity. So, so sometimes people have thought, well, you should just avoid that altogether. I, uh, as some of you know, I grew up in a Mennonite church uh, in, in Kansas. When it was founded in the late 1800s, they built the building with two entrances, one for men and one for women. And in fact, that's how they were seated in, in, the, in the congregation. There was a men's side and a women's side. And as I grew up, they, people still referred to it as the men's side and the women's side, even though uh, those, those uh, ideas were, were history by then. So is that the solution? No, Timothy, it isn't. The solution is to have a pure mindset. Sisters with absolute purity. Treat, her like a, treat them like a sister. You love your sister, but you're not attracted to your sister. So it changes the illustration. And I think if, if Paul was writing to Timothy as an older pastor, he'd say treat younger women like a daughter. The church really is family. And so we, we adopt a mindset of this is my brother, my sister, my, my dad, my mom, uh, spiritually. So the basic principle here so far is that leaders cannot, dare not, excuse harsh or improper treatment. So shepherds care, but must care carefully. Timothy, in your position, don't be full of yourself and mistreat people using your position as, as like emotional leverage. And definitely, Timothy, don't use it to take advantage of, of, of women. Uh, sometimes I even cringe just to, to read some of the uh, Christian periodicals online that you almost know that there's going to be some kind of moral scandal somewhere in America or the world with some spiritual leader. So a healthy church and its leaders meet spiritual needs with great care. But obviously, this is about a particular physical, financial need. So a church must also address and meet physical needs, but there's this tension or this balance. Do so carefully, wisely. Let's read verses 3 through 8. Give honor or recognition to those widows who are really in need But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So Timothy, give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. And then he comes back to the first issue. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty uh, clear rebuke or warning, I should say. Widows were a major portion of the poor in the first century. Uh, in first century Rome, in the empire, no, a woman who, who lost her husband was in serious trouble because there were no uh, government programs, survivor benefits. 
And it would have been extremely rare for a woman to have an occupation in which she could uh, support herself financially or to actually have some kind of really uh, retirement funds. Uh, Men were the sole providers, almost more like in our country, 50, 75 or more years ago, it was more typically that way. So when the provider died in those days, what was the safety net? Well, what we read here is that everybody understood the family should be the safety net. But the unique thing about the gospel, the attractive thing about the gospel is that the church could provide an additional layer of care, support, and safety and provision for widows. I don't think that everything that we read here fits only widows or necessarily all widows uh, today. There's all kinds of different financial situations. Um, and I believe that, but I believe we can apply these principles. What we see coming through the Old Testament is that God has always had a particular eye for and care for the poor, the widows, the orphans. Uh, And then because he cares, it's expected that people who love God care about what he cares about. And he has, as we read, a very uh, harsh condemnation of those who would refuse to or would even take advantage of the poor. So honor those who are truly widows. The word honor here is not talking about give the widows a tiara and a poster. It's obviously talking about the kind of honor where you are supporting them. In fact, it's the same kind of use of the word honor that is in the next passage actually about uh, honoring uh, full-time elders financially. So honor, help support them, Timothy, meaning really from some kind of church funds. And if they are widows, the word widow just means left alone. And probably it extended then as now to beyond just death, but uh, imprisonment, perhaps uh, disability, divorce, desertion, those kinds of things. If they, in other words, support those who are left alone if they are, then it says, widows indeed are truly widows. And the idea there is introducing this next uh, qualifier that means that they're, they're, they're really left alone because they don't have family to support them. So, so when the man is gone, is there an automatic you know, paycheck from the church? And he says, no, it's not that simple because if anyone, we as Christians in our families should care for those in need, the widow, the orphan in our family. But so widow, particularly here, if a widow has children or grandchildren, in fact, notice that, grandchildren, that uh, sometimes we already even think of it two generations down, but children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. Help mom, help grandma, repay them. They cared for you. Moms and grandmas were taking care of, of, of them and, and really grandparents uh, when they were young. You, you didn't buy the cow. You didn't milk the cow. You didn't make the butter. You didn't bring it to the house. You 
Somebody else was doing all of this for you all those years. And so now when mom or grandma or grandpa are, are, are in need, you step up. Because that's what your religion would teach us. The word religion is kind of like piety or, in other words, if there's the, the practical side of your faith would say you need to make sure you are helping those most obvious. There, there's nothing wrong with having a social security system or government programs in place. This context, this culture couldn't have conceived of that. But we need to avoid the mindset that government is responsible to take care of us. Um, and so in our financial planning, to be thinking about where you might need to take care of mom and dad. Uh, financial planning, but really even life planning. Or jump to verse 8, where he re- returns to this theme. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Doesn't mean worse off eternally, but you're acting worse. Uh, Aristotle, a couple of three centuries before this, uh, wrote that a man should starve himself before letting his parents starve. Or the philosopher Philo, just maybe just about a generation before this, wrote, Old storks that become unable to fly should stay in their nest and let the young feed them. Just reversing that picture from, from the bird kingdom, huh? So if pagans take care of their needy parents as they would generally be expected to do, then what would it say about Christians who don't? That's Paul's point. So the church should not help financially if there are adult children who can do so. Then he says there's actually uh, another reason, and that would be a spiritual qualification of the one receiving. Verse 5, the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But then there might be others. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead while she, even while she lives. So there is some personal accountability. Uh, this, this widow who is truly needy, kind of the base qualification is she understands her dependence upon God, which is an incredibly essential spiritual lesson everyone needs to learn. Uh, she's no spiritual lightweight because she happens to be a widow. Uh, culturally, you kind of go, yeah, that poor, poor woman kind of a thing. But it could well be that she has developed an understanding of God that really is placing her spiritually far ahead the people who are supporting her. In fact, you'd have to think sometimes that you know, someday if there were a line of eternal rewards, we'll be standing behind a lot of widows who have learned to trust in God. So you don't want to miss that lesson. In fact, um, towards the, at the very end of the book, Paul makes that point to those who are wealthier. Make sure that you don't fail to learn the lesson of trusting in God just because you have more money. On, in contrast, there, there could be a widow who is living for pleasure, indulgent. She claims to follow Christ, 
Maybe on Sunday, but the rest of the week she is living immorally, otherwise selfish or extravagantly. He describes her as dead while she lives. Some kind of a spiritual death, whether this is saying that she's proving she's not saved, at least she's not acting like it. She wants money from the church, but wants nothing to do with God's standard or having any personal accountability. The church's resources should not be used to support that lifestyle. So, Timothy, verse 7, make sure you, you give these instructions, teach these principles, and here we are still doing it, so that no one may be open to blame or, actually it's the same term when it says of elders and deacons that they should live above reproach, so that the, the community around would not say, she's one of you, you're supporting her, do you, do you know her reputation? And thus, it would, would jeopardize the ministry of the church and obviously the, the testimony of Christ. So I think these are good, good principles to think about, not only as a church, but also individually as you consider where, where and how and who to whom you give. The principle is to give generously, but discern the truly needy. Um, probably it would mean you would err on the side of grace, but then be wise and careful and know when to back off. Sometimes you might be taken advantage of, but they can fool you once, maybe. I'm convinced you guys would be proud of uh, the men on the board who have these responsibilities with our Deacons Fund. Feel free to ask anybody in, in leadership here kind of how that works, some of the philosophy uh, that we have and some of the safeguards. I'm sure that sometimes we have misjudged in some small ways, but it is a true blessing to be able to distribute to people in need uh, financial support or help on more of an occasional one-time basis. But um, our, our, really our guidance, our, our, our philosophy comes largely from this passage in Galatians about focusing on meeting needs of the church family, sometimes extending it. So, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This could be financial, this could be various ways we, we serve. Um, but in terms of financial help from the church family, it seems to make great sense that uh, we would care for one another. It's a demonstration. People can see that we care and love one another. It's also then people we know, whereas there's more easily lines of, of, of accountability. And what, what can, can take place, and what has taken place on a, a number of occasions is someone is needing counsel or guidance, not simply just uh, financial help. So we, we seek to focus on the church family, but as this passage says, there are opportunities outside of that, and so a, a, a degree of what we do uh, in terms of that fund is, is where that we hear of or even seek some opportunities strategically where, where God could use our outreach and sharing of love and care and grace outside of the church family strategically for the, hopefully the cause of the gospel. So God's grace is generous and we must be, but also we must be careful. So these are words to, to givers, aren't they? So do you help, pan, do you help panhandlers? 
I can't answer all that for you. Um, I know, I'm looking at this week, the city of Milwaukee actually outlaws that in various places. You know, you, you pull up to an exit or something and there's someone in the median uh, like that and they seem to be indeed obvious uh, need. Uh, Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee has in some places put up signs urging people to give to local charities instead. It's a program called Keep the Change. I'd say if God puts those kind of needs on your heart, seek out places like Milwaukee Rescue Mission, uh, City on a Hill. Uh, These organizations have profound ministries helping. Uh, They're accountable. They, they They have programs. They can hold people accountable a bit better. And of course, the added uh, value of presenting Jesus Christ uh, to someone. I remember one time <clears throat> I was at a pastor's conference in Chicago. I think a couple of us guys had gone out for pizza after the session, and on our way back, we were approached by someone asking for money. And uh, I remember having this conversation because we're not that terrible far. Well, it's a ways, but. I asked the man, I said, are you acquainted with Pacific Garden Mission? Because it's another good Christian mission. And I heard such a string of expletives as he stormed away. Gives you some indication of where he was at uh, spiritually. He, he didn't want any of that kind of help. I understand it's a, it's a, it's a troubling situation. Give generously, but discern the truly needy. So verses 3 through 8 describe the ministry of the church, specifically to widows, but we find out a little bit more about that ministry in the following verses, which says there's some kind of reciprocity here because there's supposed to be a ministry of the widows to the church. Uh, Follow this along. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for the younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. What is this about? What is this list, and what, what can we discern that this list might be? I really believe this is more than just simply a list of who does the church support, but rather it indicates a ministry list, what seems to have been for them an organized widow's ministry that the widows who received seemingly a regular kind of support were to devote themselves to serving others. And evidently they've made some kind of pledge to remain single, which brought up the issue of the younger widows who didn't uh, tend to keep that pledge. So they were making some kind of commitment to long-term ministry, and the church was su- supporting them. That would kind of explain the age limit and the expectation spiritually as well. 
unless she's over 60. So this would make sense for older women who were uh, able to commit to say, you know, we're, we're, we're not seeking remarriage. And they were going to be approved for this list to receive money to live on, but they were also spiritually qualified to give ministry to others. And so these, these qualifications of their, of their character, frankly, if you look at the, the qualifications of, of, of verse 10, for example, well, 9 and 10, you see the parallels to the qualifications for elders and deacons. They were, they were this, this kind of a, of a woman with this kind of maturity and, and godliness. And so this seems to have been, to me, a, a specific ministry group that were essentially employed by the church to serve. Now, I don't think this was probably the, the sum total of the only kind of giving the church did. I think in the spirit of of, of, of the scriptures of the Old Testament to help the poor, to help the widows, to help the, the, uh, the orphans would be another piece where w- without forming an official group there was more of a deacon's fund, uh, if you will, but this group was to be particularly employed, you could say. So these are women who did not see themselves as simply victims of tragedy, though they were. They had the spiritual maturity to embrace the tragedy they had experienced, their loss, that directed them to a new season of ministry. And this week I had to think, I won't name any names though I could, uh, of so many single women at Open Door through the, through the years who have seemingly embraced their situation in life and turned it into an opportunity for ministry. And they are serving encouraging uh, the church, uh, others individually. And while we may not have an official widow's ministry like Ephesus, I think the spiritual descendants are, are all among us. And we could not do this ministry without their time, their skills, their efforts, and generosity. When Paul wrote to Titus about the same time, he was leading the church in Crete, He wrote about a ministry of older women to younger women. He doesn't call it a widow's ministry. And yet, I can't help but see some of the the parallels in terms of these older women and the ministry to younger. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. This, is, this should be the spiritual goal of every woman, that, that you want to be someone who, at a later stage in life, if not already, is able to teach and, and help younger women. So the idea is really like 1 Timothy 5, mature spiritual character, but then the added responsibility of ministry to others, teach godliness to younger women. In light of the ministry of widows in 1 Timothy 5, I'm also reminded in Luke 2 of a widow named Anna, if you're acquainted with that story, and it's really part of the Christmas story, Luke 2, right? And Anna was a widow whose husband had died, it says, uh, seven years into marriage. 
And she had spent the rest of her life really coming to the temple devoted to prayer and worship. And so it says that she was 84 years old. If we're understanding the math right there, there are some maybe 60 plus years she has been devoted to the temple and God honored her with letting her see the Messiah, Jesus, as a baby in the temple. The question might be, who took care of her financially? I, don't, I don't, wouldn't doubt that with, with the Old Testament uh, tradition behind it, that, the, that she was supported as part of a widow's group. So maybe what Paul is instructing and, 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 and writing about here is actually a continuity with the Old Testament Jewish practice. God, regardless, God values the, the ministry heart of someone who we might view as saying they're a needy person. And God says, don't write them off like they're just needy. They're actually some of the most valuable servants in the body of Christ. If they, A, verse 5, fix their hope on God. B, devote themselves to serving others, verses 9 and 10. And then you can count on it, God will provide for them. If that's the older widows, we can't avoid the warning here right, about the younger widows, right? Let's read that, verses 11 through 15. There must have been something really going on that was a problem he's addressing. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge if they had promised they wouldn't be married. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So there were names and faces that Paul and uh, Timothy had in mind where this had happened. At first, it seems a bit demeaning to the younger women, as widows, as if it was everybody, but it's not everybody. But there were some examples of this. Uh, and it put the integrity of this important widow's ministry in jeopardy. So it says they had uh, left their pledge. Some of you may have the translation says they left the faith. Uh, it's just simply the word faith just being used as breaking a promise. It's one of the ways to use that term. So they changed their mind. They had agreed uh, in, their, in their widowhood, uh, being even though they were young, we're not going to get married, we're going to join this ministry, and we're going to receive support. And then they met this guy. <laughs> and so everything changed. And the, the, these younger women seemingly... I think we get a little bit of a glimpse of what this ministry was like. This going from house to house seems to be what this widow's ministry did. They would, they would go and they would help and they would serve. and they'd, I, don't, I don't know if they'd be bringing meals or they'd be babysitting or they'd be encouraging or teaching the younger, other younger women. So they, they, they plugged in some of these younger widows that way. And because of their spiritual immaturity, and, and in some sense, you're young, you're young, uh, they were misusing it and it was becoming gossip and talking about stuff they shouldn't talk about. And, and then to top it off, they're getting paid by the church. 
And some of them, he said, actually in this, in this practice had, had become spiritual failures. They've, they've followed Satan. I don't know how you can put it much stronger. Did they, uh, was it immorality? Was it some uh, complete denial of the faith? We don't know, but as the stories of this, their character got into the community, what does that do to the reputation of Christ in the church? So Timothy, I, I, I would urge them to remarry if possible. So on one hand, back in verse 11, it sounds like that's a terrible thing that they want to marry. No, it's not actually a terrible thing. I think he's just saying their, their, their natural inclination would be that they would want to get married. He says, encourage that. Because the best thing would be if they would be able to remarry. I realize it's not entirely in their, in their control. But remarry if possible and uh, raise children. Kind of restart life and, and grow spiritually. It takes time, right? Uh, I mean, seriously, those years of childbearing and working hard, those are prime time for spiritual growth. That's what God's doing in our lives in those years. And so give these women an opportunity, if at all possible, that they would be able to restart that and, and raise your kids and work hard. And, and, and then you don't give the, the enemy an opportunity. You won't bring disgrace on this, this ministry of the church and you could avoid some of these drastic spiritual failures that have taken place. And, and you could really say there's an implied additional reason and their husbands will meet their financial needs. They'll be married into another family that can meet their financial needs and the church won't uh, be, be burdened with that. So an over, overall principle here is that those from this whole widow's support and ministry seems to be that those who receive financial help, those who receive must, must seek ways to give. It's really a basic principle of how life always works. It's, it's the thing with our, our children, right? That children can't help pay the mortgage, and so we ask them to do chores because we're seeking to teach them that you're not working for mom and dad for free when you do chores, you're actually gratefully responding to the fact they are providing everything for you. It's the way the Christian life works. There's no, there's no, it's not like you, you quit being your, a child, you get kicked out of the family if you don't do your chores gratefully, but the same thing is true. You don't get kicked out of God's family if you don't serve Christ. But seriously, everything that you have, you received. You received eternal life through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. You received spiritual gifts, which is the spiritual capacity to serve others. So, so why wouldn't you do the chores? Why wouldn't you serve Christ and see how can you gratefully respond to that? Uh, Jesus, Matthew 10, sending out the disciples on a ministry trip, gives them their instructions and he said, freely you've received, freely give. That's just that's what grace is supposed to do is you've received all this spiritual benefit. Why wouldn't you then serve as my disciple? So bringing it back to this setting, though, if, if, if you receive financial help from someone, there should be a sense of gratitude and, and service. You can, you can serve them by praying for them. If you, you've been in a position where people have spiritually helped you, uh, I mean financially helped you, they should be people you pray for. In fact, I've sensed sometimes that some of our best prayer warriors are the missionaries we support. 
as they receive funds from us to support their life and ministry, I hear how they want to pray for us. How can we pray for you? I think that's the spirit of this because there is so much, in the divine economy, there's so much more about generosity than money. When you, when you take the time to listen to someone, when you take, when you take the effort to, to encourage someone, when you, when you serve them in practical ways, God is, is like creating this divine economy of truly caring for one another. And this passage simply serves to say, you do so carefully, especially when church finances are involved. Principal character matters for both givers and receivers. Obviously, we see some of the warnings about uh, those who receive. If they're going to be regularly supported, uh, you have to note you know, our, what is their spiritual character. This is a spiritual ministry, but also those who are in leadership, Timothy or others, have to be spiritually wise. This probably, this probably takes us to the issue of the connection. This passage is teaching us that money is spiritual and you cannot separate financial things from spiritual things. And, and maybe it just seems to be part of our, our natural bent to do so. Um, we've talked about this principle through the years, but you know, sometimes we can feel like, well, I'm going to judge my own spirituality by... Uh, the fact that I've overcome some of these major sin issues, so I, my life looks okay. And um, I do these things that are good. But my money, that's kind of like my business. Everything else is God's except, except that. That should be an alarming thought. And it's true whether we are in financial need, have financial abundance, or somewhere in between. Because almost nothing can reflect our spiritual mindset more than this. Well, how do we think about money? Because it all exposes character. Our, our earning, our, our uh, saving, spending, giving is reflecting a spiritual principle. Do I, do I trust in God? Or not to trust in self, or do I trust in self? So it was an issue for the widows. At the end of, the, of this, this book, we'll see it's, a, it's an issue for the wealthy. Do I trust God or am I trusting in self and money? It's the issue of, of contentment versus greed. There's never enough. Or are we content? There's the issue of sacrifice or generosity. And these all take place at all levels. There's always these issues. And this, this, when this passage is about money, and it, it, it makes those kind of spiritual, hopefully spiritual thoughts arise in us. The final verse then reviews and exposes a, a generosity issue for the family member who has a widow in the family. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. It's not a new principle, but now it's like it's addressing, um, well, it seems to address the women, and you would think, yeah, that's probably the case, a married woman, she's got someone supporting her, and she's got a widow in the family, so she's able to be the, the hands and feet who do that. 
Um, if some of you are looking at a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, you will see it says any believing man or woman. Actually, there's more Greek texts that have that uh, statement, and I think it could be correct because it would apply indeed to both. But the principle is essentially this, that if you then have a widow in your family, and you can extend that to some other kinds of needs that takes all kinds of discernment, who do you help and should you, but then you need to care, you need to care carefully, uh, but biblically and in and, and a practical way. The, the family is the first safety net. Genesis 38 describes a widow who uh, stayed with her father, had to go back to her father's house. Ruth tells the story of Ruth living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then later on, Boaz married as the uh, next of kin of her, of her uh, husband. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 and elsewhere describes the, uh, this Old Testament a dis, uh, instruction of leveret marriage where if, if a, 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 a woman's husband died and there was an unmarried brother-in-law, he was really required to marry his brother's wife to help take care of it. This, this family principle was, was strong in, 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 the, in the biblical times. So it, in our day, sometimes it's Retirement funds will take care of it, or insurance, or social security, or government programs, and that's all good. But even when that's the case, the principle here is take care of mom and dad and grandpa and grandma. Someone's going to have to handle things, paperwork, bills, banking, fixing stuff, moving stuff, getting the groceries and some of you are saying you've been doing that for a while and helping out, and that is great. And if unbelievers do it, certainly believers should. What a great testimony. And again, I, 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 I could tell stories of, of some of your lives, I'm sure, where I can see your commitment to those who are older and how you are caring for them. Um, there's another set of stories that... Uh, are more confidential of how the church has helped and it's not always just finances but in different ways there's some of those things are are continually going on helping those who need some support that even goes beyond uh, what a family can do god cares about the poor about widows about orphans the elderly uh, god can use social security pensions retirement insurance but fundamentally god wants to use family and then what a demonstration of the grace of God when he uses the church and others recently I heard a pastor friend make this statement uh, speaking I don't know if it's his statement Henry's he actually Henry spoke here one time but temp mercy is temporary relief from the curse I like that definition when we, when we help, when we show mercy to someone in need, we are not fixing sin, are we? But God is using us in some partial, practical way to relieve something that sin has caused. That's caring for the orphans. It's adoption. It's giving financially. It's writing a check. It's... it's 
helping take care of someone else's kids. There's, there's, a, there's a hundreds of ways that we show mercy and in a sense lift in this life already some of the power of sin and the curse. And so we have to care. But the reminder is to do it carefully. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are reminded that we are blessed to be a blessing. And you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And particularly in this century or, or generation and in, in this country, and sometimes it seems even in this county, we are particularly blessed. I thank you for the generosity and blessing that uh, has uh, characterized the people of Open Door for so long. Help us, Lord, as we uh, evaluate any of our present situations, any of the future concerns, knowing that whatever is ahead in, in our lives or in our, our country or world, these principles will remain steady and that you will care for the church, care for us, care for the church, and care for one another in these ways. So help us to focus on that which you make, for, for which you make us responsible. In Jesus' name, amen.